Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of has its own history, like exotic animals, personal fitness and board games. <laughs> Those were courtesy of one of our very special listeners, Sam, uh, a, a woman hey. called Momo. So a huge thank you for making these uh, suggestions. Um, uh, or we could do Hate the Gate, the Date... Uh, lateness, greatness, and weightlessness. That sort of, that sort of works, Swimming. doesn't it? Do any of those float your boat, young Willis? Yes, weightlessness. Weightlessness. I think I think we should definitely do exotic animals, personal fitness, and board games, or at least one of those yeah. for Momo. What do you think? Right, right. Yes, board games would be fantastic. Lots of yeah, board games. Do... Oh, there's a great deal there. Great deal there. However, for the moment, we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of tents is in fact all about ancient Rome and Trajan's column in Rome. It's also about the Industrial Revolution, nomadism and the American Civil War. It's about Tudor glamping, Henry VIII and the field of the cloth of gold. It's also about journeying to the South Pole. Who knew? Or who knew that the history of corpses, the history of corpses, <laughs> we should do this, we should re-release this for Halloween, yeah, I think, um, which is all about the eccentric Cornish landowner, Sir James Tilly, who demanded, who demanded that upon his death, his body should be tied to a chair facing the River Tamar in an all-purpose built mausoleum at Pentilly Castle, and he was to be fed every day. It's also about Viking corpse doors and mortuary practices relating to doors. It's about superstitions to do with bleeding corpses. It's also all about 16th and 17th century burial practices, exhumation, posthumous execution, and corpses on the move. Uh, Oliver mm. Cromwell's corpse on the move. I'm going to be talking a little bit about uh, Benito Mussolini uh, later on today. Um, and his corpse has a really interesting history. Really interesting history. We should... Re we should I'll maybe, maybe see if I can talk about that. But for the moment, who knew? The history of corpses... <laughs> Very good stuff. Uh, let me introduce my fellow presenter before we get on to our episode today. He is the Elvis of elocution, the Freddie Mercury of footnotes, the James Dean of dissertations, the Beyonce of bibliographies, the Marilyn Monroe of matriculation, and my favourite, he is the J.R.R. Tolkien of talking. <laughs> yes, he is. The Picasso of podcasts. He, Brilliant. Uh, uh, he, he is a professor extraordinaire of early modern British history at Plymouth University. And he is the wonderful Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. <laughs> Hello, Sam. Your your alliteration um, just makes me feel incredibly <laughs> humble. Uh, you may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say, if he were a fame-related historian, the man is fame incarnate. His historical prowess is the stuff of legend. He will be lauded by posterity for his services to the great noble art of the antiquary. His literary oeuvre will be greeted with peace of praise. It's the famous historical adventurer himself, Dr. Sam Willis. No one-hit wonder of yesteryear is he, bumping around <laughs> at a loose end, uh. anchoring after past greatness, miserably carrying an ironing board as a desk wherever he chooses to lay his historical hat. 
<laughs> very, very good. That will make sense to you all. It will make sense. Uh, soon. Um, today, uh, thank you very much, James, for the wonderful intro. Today we are doing the history of fame. It's one we've been talking about doing for some time, but we're choosing it today because we've both watched a fantastic new film on Netflix called I Used to Be Famous. We thought that it threw up so many interesting and unexpected themes that it would be worth exploring. So that's what we're doing today. We're doing the history of fame. And to start with, um, we're going to go to our uh, in-house film reviewer, James Dable. <laughs> excellent, excellent, Sam. Yes, so we watched this film, um, which was absolutely a charming, really, really charming film. Uh, I used to be famous. It's a, it's a new film by writer-director Eddie Sternberg. And in a nutshell... Um, the main character, uh, Vince, who's played by a brilliant actor called Ed Scrine, uh, used to be in a boy band. Uh, so the film opens with, you know, shots of the, the sort of the fame that he had when he was, you know, at the, at the prime and the band was really popular. And then you see him as somebody who is alone, who is desperate. He literally can't afford to buy half a pint of beer uh, in a local pub. And you see him traipsing round from one recording studio to another, t- sending off a, a mixtape that he's made, a sample tape that he's made. Um, he tries to get gigs in local pubs and they listen to him and, you know, and won't take him. And what I found really sort of heartwarming was the fact that he, he traipses around with an, with an ironing board uh, which is basically the platform that he puts his synthesizer uh, on. I felt really, really sorry for him. But then there's a there's a real sort of shift in the film when he meets an autistic drummer uh, who is played by a newcomer, Leo Long, who himself is neurodiverse, and he gives a brilliant performance here. Um, what's remarkable about it is this guy, this young boy, has an incredible gift for rhythm. Uh, you see him playing with a set of drumsticks on a on a bench, uh, and what we see unfolding is a really unexpected friendship. And together, they form quite a unique bond uh, through the power of music. So it's a very nostalgic, feel-good movie. Strong performances from the two leads. Great soundtrack. Um, it's filmed in London's East End. So there's this really moody backdrop. And it's it's a real choice to film a very realistic London cityscape, largely around Peckham, so it's quite edgy. Um, and there are really interesting depictions of old London pubs with beautiful wooden wooden counters and glass. But for us, I think the key thing, the key things are to think about what it tells us about fame. So you have somebody who is famous or was famous, used to be famous, and then has now fallen from fallen from favour, he's down on his luck while other members of the band are doing exceedingly well. You've also got the power of music. I think there's a really interesting discussion about autism here it's wonderful to see that represented in a film like this. If I were to think about, you know, how I would categorise the film, it's a sort of Billy Elliot meets High Fidelity or About a Boy meets Netflix Atypical, which is a wonderful uh, series with autism as its main storyline. And it's in the great British-Irish tradition of the Full Monty or The Commitments, which is all about the power of music. So it's a really great riffing point for a Histories of the Unexpected episode, Sam. Absolutely is. I mean, it got me thinking so many different ways about about fame and, and also the relationship with music. I think one of the interesting things, if you talk about... It makes you think about what fame is primarily and how it's changed over time. Um, because what Vince had before he loses it, is a, is a type of celebrity, which is a very modern type of celebrity. Um, and if you think about how, say, the Romans considered fame, the, the word fama itself means rumour, but it also could mean something very specific. It could mean great deeds that would be known for millennia. Now, perhaps Vince was realistic in knowing that being in a, in a flash-in-the-pan boy band, he may not be famous for millennia. Um, but the, the key point is, is that they, they, Romans didn't have a word for celebrity as we kind of know of it and think of it today particularly in the world of instagram now where flame can explode and can disappear like a real flash in the pan and i thought that was particularly interesting also 
the type of fame that Vince experiences. So he's a he's a musician. Now, if you go back in time, then there, the types of people that become famous change, and the, the reasons that they change themselves are interesting and have their own histories. So um, if you go back to, the, let's say, the Roman period, the prim- primarily you've got politicians, performers, and to a certain sense, athletes who were famous. So you've got people like Aristophanes, who's a playwright, or uh, Socrates, who's a philosopher. Um, athletes, you've got Leonidas of Rhodes, who was a runner. Uh, in fact, he was such a fantastic runner, he held the record for the most Olympic wins until Michael Phelps beat him in 2016. So that was pretty impressive. Uh, in the medieval period, um, you've got saints who become particularly famous. Now, what we're looking at here with Vince is very much someone who's a musician. Perhaps you could see him as a model as well. Someone uh, he's very much in a boy band. The the people who are who are following him and uh, enjoying his music are primarily female. Um, and it got me really thinking about how this all happens. Of course, it's to do with the invention of mass media. So you you need to have uh, people producing. Um, cheap but also very accessible things like newspapers. Uh, You also need people to be able to read, so literacy is very important. And once you've got the printing presses that can produce in a mass way, that they can produce things cheaper, then you get uh, the the kind of the the foundations of the fame that we all understand today. Now, this all changes... I suppose it's worth saying that that all happens in the the Renaissance, uh, the 16th and then on to the 17th century with the printing presses. Then it changes with uh, photography and the Victorian period, you've got the impact of the Industrial Revolution. So it's not just photography and people being able to see images and fame growing from images. You've also got um, steam ships which take you across the, uh, the the Atlantic very, very fast. You've also got railway travel and that allows you to travel in a way which creates and builds fame if you think of um there's a key bit here in the greatest showman think about the musical there um when there's a very famous lady singer and um they will go off and and kind of ally themselves with her now she has become famous because of the ability to travel and of the existence of cameras um it's based on a very famous french actress called sarah bernhardt 1844 to 1923 who's primarily considered as the first modern celebrity So uh, it's worth thinking, James, just, you know, how Vince got his fame and what that tells us about the history of the media. Oh, I think that's great. I think that's absolutely wonderful. Um, If you're really interested in the subject of fame, there are a couple of books that I've been reading about this. The first is Greg Jenner's Dead Famous, an unexpected history of celebrity from Bronze Age to the Silver Screen. And also Sharon Marcus's The Long and Strange History of Celebrity. Brilliant reads, uh, both of them. Uh, If we think about Jenner, it's written in his characteristic, accessible, colloquial style, whereas the latter is a bit more... More, um, more of an academic work. And there's a, a key distinction here between fame experienced in one's lifetime and the kind of modern-day celebrity which is ephemeral, ephemeral and fleeting, the sort of reality star celebrity or five minutes of fame. And we're recording this on the 7th of September uh, 2022 and in the United Kingdom and yesterday on the 6th of September 2022, um, Boris Johnson resigned as Prime Minister and Liz Truss um, became the new Prime Minister uh, of the United Kingdom. What's fascinating there is the way in which it connects to what you were saying about the media and the way in which they are trying to control their image, but also their posterity and their fame through particularly social media and through speeches. Um, Boris Johnson stood on the steps of Number 10 Downing Street yesterday at 7.30 in the morning and delivered what I think was a a brilliant speech, characteristically, um, you know, Boris Johnson, full of sort of, uh, you know, classical references that refer to him potentially coming back as a sort of uh, Roman dictator. Um, (laughs) But... um, but also what what's key there is that he is he's after preserving his 
posterity so he's after cementing his legacy so it's all about getting brexit done it's about the rollout of the vaccine it's about support for ukraine contrast him with somebody like liz truss who isn't a great orator in fact she's really clumsy robotic when you hear her public speaking but what she's good at is marshalling social media apparently back in the yeah, in you know 2014, maybe earlier, she was one of the first of that sort of Cameronite sort of gang who were on Instagram. And if you looked at the pictures of her entering Number Ten Downing Street yesterday, they were probably from an official photographer who populated her Instagram feed. And then they go out to all of these news channels. So she is actually really controlling her image and her fame. And it's really interesting to see how this is being used nowadays. Really, really interesting. The way in which politicians really are ahead of the curve on the way in which you use social media. It's not just celebrities like Kim Kardashian, Lady Gaga, Rihanna, Katy Perry or whatever. It's actually... You know, it's actually the way in which politicians use it. With the rise of populism, I think it's an extraordinary thing to look at. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. And I think your points about posterity are so relevant to the film, James, because the one thing that Vince doesn't have is posterity. So he becomes famous and then his fame goes. Um, and the idea of, of ensuring your legacy, you talked about Boris Johnson wanting to do that there and make sure he's remembered in a good light. That's got a fantastic history. I think that Vince may have learned a, a few things from politicians in the past. One of the things that really got me thinking about this was I was doing some filming in Berlin uh, a few weeks ago um, and I was talking about the, um, the marriage, the links between Rome and and ancient Egypt. And it all becomes particularly interesting when Cleopatra gets together with Antony um, in particular. And it, it's very visual in the surviving coins of the period. So it's not that unusual to have ruling couples depicted on coins. It you know, demonstrates a solid reign. But what's really interesting about the coins from this period is that on the one side, you've got, uh, you've got a ruler from the Roman Empire. And the other one is the Queen of Egypt. You've got very much a, a kind of a crossing of boundaries here. Um, it's it's physical proof of two empires being made into one, and not just that, but it's it's done in a way to make sure that it is never forgotten. Um, what they're doing is they're allying themselves. Um, you know, they provide each other with grain, they provide each other with security, with soldiers. It's a it's a perfect union, and actually being strong in Egypt allows the Romans to go and concentrate on what's happening uh, happening back home in Rome. And what they want to do is to demonstrate to people in the future that this is actually the way ahead for both of their empires. Their posterity uh, is is, in, is incredibly important. Um, a part of that is is the really interesting thing about appearance on coins. Now, what got me thinking about this is there are a couple of moments in the in the the film where Vince. Um, He's very much used to be in a boy bed, right? And, and the actor himself, Ed Screen, he's thirty nine. And there are a couple of moments where Vince looks every bit of 39. He's down on his luck. He looks tired. He looks old. He looks lined. He's nothing like the fresh-faced uh, guy, lead singer of this boy band that started off the film. And uh, I thought that was fascinating. Because it made me think about the way that um, people in the past concerned about their posterity very much manipulate their appearance uh, and James, uh, you certainly got me thinking about this yonks ago with uh, Queen Elizabeth I and her portraits. That's a very good example of it. So uh, there are, um, there. Are, well, she was born in 1533. And when she's in her early 60s, you, you start getting, uh, there are no portraits that actually depict how she looks. Um, there is no faithful resemblance of her as she has aged. And we know from depictions of her that when she was 65, her teeth are very yellow and unequal on the left side, less than on the right. Many are missing. One cannot understand her easily when she speaks quickly. Um, that's from uh, an ambassador from Henry IV of France who actually visited the Queen. Um, now, this whole idea of, of appearance and posterity and how it changes over time is really interesting if you look particularly at Roman coins. So um, if you look at the coins of the Republic, you've got 
uh, emperors who are very happy being depicted as they are. A lot of them have receding hairlines, wrinkly skin, loose skin, kind of classic tropes of old age. And I say this as a 45-year-old man. I know exactly <laughs> what they're talking about. Um, it then changes. Try being really almost 50, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 have, you have skin like a baby's bottom, Of course James. I do. It'll, it'll of course never I change. do. Um, Youthful Italian olive skin. <laughs> yes, very much so. Uh, interesting, though, uh, changes with the first emperors, Augustus. Uh, that He's a cracker. Never depicted old as well. But then it really changes with Nero, who's a dictator, and he doesn't care what he looks like at all. He's just he's just drawn incredibly fat, like, I mean, bulging chins and bulging eyes. Um, so my point is there that you the, the way that appearance... Uh, is controlled over history, changes all the time. It's not necessarily what you think. Some people would have been proud of Vince's appearance in his uh, uh, late 30s, early 40s, um, uh, but doesn't really necessarily work with boy bands at the time, nor nor really with with pop stars in general. But I think that's changing with uh, people like Mick Jagger showing how you can rock it when you get into your 70s. Yes, or Paul McCartney, uh, who apparently mm, do, who apparently does uh, facial yoga. Uh, have you heard of this? Mm. A, a, co- a neighbour of mine was telling me all about facial yoga the other day. Uh, it's a way of sort of tightening your face without doing Botox. Uh, so I, I think everyone should uh, Google this and, and start doing this. It's something you can do you can do at home uh, any time. Um, Sam Willis, we are so on the same wavelength. Uh, not only uh, did I read that. Uh, that account from the French ambassador this week for something that I was doing. Um, uh, I'm writing about gloves. Uh, I'm finishing off the gloves book, and they, it also that that piece also depicts the Queen's hands and the taking on and off of gloves. Uh, so, which so uh, we're remarkably sort of attuned. But also, my I was going to talk about the about ancient Rome and uh, and public image and controlling public image. And this was something that we looked at in our book on the Romans, The Unexpected History of the Romans, in the chapter on recycling. Because alongside coins, the way in which Roman rulers projected, or any sort of, you know, official projected their image in posterity was through statuary, public statuary and architecture. And these were very visible symbols that celebrated wealthy benefactors who paid for them or who commissioned them. And so basically Rome is littered with examples of statues and civic buildings of various sort of forms with the names of emperors, consuls, senators and other wealthy patricians chiselled into them. Now, flipping that on its head, what what the chapter about recycling is also all about is that while you are famous, you know, you were able to have your statues and your buildings and your names chiselled everywhere, when you fell from fame, when other rulers took over, what they did was amend those. And so there's a lot of evidence of the way in which those who came into power actually erased and censored the memories and identities, quite literally destroying and confiscating property, banning personal names, literally erasing personal names in inscriptions. Um, So it was basically deliberately obliterating the memory of individuals from the material landscape of the Roman Empire. And there's a brilliant... Just a bit like... Sorry, James. It's a bit like, like, take that, uh, destroying all of the posters of uh, someone like 911. Yes. Like the previous era of boy band, just going yes, out and yes, making sure yes. that none of their publicity material even survived. <laughs> Or, or or Stalin um, removing Trotsky uh, from exactly. from from Absolutely. from photographs. So this is yes. wonderful. <laughs> this is wonderful example of of a, a simple marble block, uh, which is about five feet high, that is now preserved in Penn Museum in Philadelphia, uh, and it was originally erected in ninety five uh, Common Era. That you know after Christ is born, um, for those who follow a sort of Christian calendar, uh, near the town of. Pol- 
Pozzuoli near Naples. And this is a brilliant uh, example. And originally, it was part of a monument that was dedicated to the Emperor Domitian, who ruled between uh, 81 and 96 CE. And then he falls into disgrace, uh, was assassinated in 96 CE after a conspiracy of court officials. And what's interesting is that after his assassination, the Senate ordered the defacement of all monuments erected to honour his name. And a workman, armed with a mallet and a chisel, basically ascends the monument and carefully chips away at each letter of the inscription until it was no longer legible, so you could no longer read it. And interestingly, some letters are completely obliterated, while others are partly visible. And archaeologists have suggested that this was the result of the workman's hand getting tired as he hammered away. And this is a sort of the archaeologist's art of the of the possible, uh, rather than the, the rather than the the definite. Um, and what's then interesting? There is a sort of commemorative lines that you can just about sort of just about decipher, which I won't read out now. Um, but what's interesting then is that in addition to this act of erasure, on the other side of the marble slab shows how the monument was then repurposed for a new, uh, you know, new people in power. And there is on the other side an image of a Roman soldier and a prefect of the Praetorian Guard, the new emperor's own bodyguard. And these are inscribed into the stone. So this isn't merely just the covering up of the identity of a past emperor. So in other words, sort of destroying his memory from posterity, his sort of posthumous fame. But also it is a clear promotion of a new imperial regime and so rather than bringing out completely new stone it's actually ancient recycling it's a recycling to honor and control the public image of the new emperor trajan so there we are sam there's a there's, there's a sort of take on controlling your public image and posthumous fame and actually doing so through stone, which I really liked. It, um, it just off the top of my head, it made me think about Mount Rushmore. Um, have you been to Mount Rushmore? I haven't. What's it like? I've, I've always wanted to. Okay, so uh, just uh, for those of you who haven't been, Mount Rushmore, uh, it's in South Dakota, and it's where these the, the monumentally these huge heads of American presidents have been put into the into the cliffs. Um, and it was it was made in the in the th- late twenties, thirties, I think. I'm literally talking off the top of my head here, but I, I can guarantee it's George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Roosevelt, and Abraham Lincoln. And and the idea behind it all um, was to kind of celebrate. Uh, the, the the growth of the United States, um, uh, the development of uh, all all of the, the the issues that kind of appeared in um, in the Constitution, basically the kind of the growth of America, and that was that was the principle behind it. Uh, but unfortunately, they didn't really think about how it would be conceived from the perspective of the people who lived there, which were the Lakota Sioux. Um, and they they came to see this enormous uh, monstrosity of head carvings on their mountains as epitomising the loss of their um, their sacred lands and subsequent injustices that they'd all suffered under the hands of the US government. So you can try and control uh, things as much as you want, but it doesn't always work. I think that's an important point to make there. Um, and uh, well, actually, it, it does make you think about old Vince and what he gets up to, you see. So he... I mean, I don't want to spoil the film too much, but he—they he, do get another. Well, at least he gets another another shot at fame, um, but decides to regain control of his life again, uh, which I think is a—it's a—it's a lovely little twist in the film. How did you read now, that? How did you read that? Because I thought that left me hanging. Did he choose to go on tour with his famous bandmate, or did he choose not to? Um, uh, I, I saw that as definitely... Well, I don't really want to spoil the film. No, 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 no. Uh, yeah. Mm, let, why don't you get in touch and tell us what you think? I've got a very clear idea, but I, I take James's point that it's open to a certain degree of interpretation. Um, now, the, one of the great things about, about the film as well is it, it allows you to explore the, the narrative of fame, right? And this is... I think one of the things that people become famous because there is often a fabulous story associated with it. It's it's rising from nothing. There's there's a rise story as well as there is a fall story. We've we're going to talk a little bit more about the fall story um, as well because there's a there's a there's a key. Uh, let's let's actually start with that, James, because there's a key bit right at the beginning of the film where where um, he Vince's 
busking uh, in Peckham Rye. It's kind of like by a mile, one of those classic uh, South East London markets. Um, people selling veg, and he's sitting on one of those uncomfortable metal seats, and he's got his synthesizer on his ironing board stand, and um, and someone who obviously knows him before or recognise him from his fame is videoing him, kind of slightly poking a finger, and she says, "How the mighty have fallen." I, I think it's a bit of an unfair line on Vince. Um, nonetheless, it did make me think about this narrative of people's lives changing. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, the, the rise, I think, a bit later. Let's just talk about falling because I thought, I thought, well, hang on a minute. He's 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 okay. Okay, he hasn't got much money, but he's he's all right. He's he's doing okay. Um, Walter Raleigh, for example, is someone who hit that, that that is how the mighty have fallen. Magnificent there are some, <laughs> some truly fantastic examples of people really falling from power. Uh, I just wanted to share that story with him. So you know. Um, born and bred in Devon, uh, manages to sort of fight his way up to London to Elizabeth's court. He uh, leads a, a very important, plays a very important role in the colonisation of North America, this key moment in, in the history of the British Empire when everyone is boarding these ships and sailing across the Atlantic, carving out a bit of land for themselves, trying to take all of the wealth that they know is there. At the same time, there's warfare back in England. He helps... Um, Elizabeth uh, suppress a rebellion in Ireland um, and the, the sort of proximity to Elizabeth uh, becomes closer and closer. He's knighted in 1585. Um, he then plays an important role as a, as a, as a warrior, as a, as a maritime warrior defending England against the Spanish Armada. He has a deep loathing for Catholicism um, and uh, he's kind of everything that Elizabeth wants really. He's like a He's like a a kind of wild tiger who wants to go, who wants to risk his own life travelling across the world for the glory of himself and also for the glory of his queen. Um, starts going wrong when he secretly marries one of Elizabeth's uh, ladies-in-waiting and gets sent to the Tower of London, um, which is it's, it's more of a slip as opposed to a major fall, which subsequently uh, very much happens. Um, he is released eventually. He, he moves off with, with um, Elizabeth Throckmorton, who is his wife, um, but then he 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 hears rumours. This is the the fifteen nineties now about El Dorado, uh, this mythical city of gold in um, in South America. Uh, now, incidentally, the El Dorado story allows you to think about fame in a slightly different way. I actually think it's a it's a story that it's it's a great example of propaganda. It's manipulation. And I think what's happening is all the natives in South America have made up El Dorado and they're telling all of the Spanish conquistadors that this wonderful city of gold is just over the next hill and it's not too far into the jungle and off you go. And it's a way of getting rid of them um, because they're there causing a great deal of trouble, um, stealing all of their wealth and poisoning them all with their diseases. So I, I think it's one of the, the great examples of um, of narrative stories becoming famous for the sole reason of manipulation, essentially early propaganda. Anyway, um, it works with Walter Raleigh. He believes in El Dorado. He sails uh, across and um, he, he spends a great deal of his life trying to find this place. Unsurprisingly, can't. Um, he foolishly gets into a fight when he's out there with the Spanish, having promised um, that he would not do so, that he would not rile the uh, the catholic spanish empire it, it involves him being put in prison when he comes back to england uh which is not good he's also been put in prison before where at the um this is the the the, the when elizabeth dies james becomes king he gets linked with a plot to replace james stuart on the throne and it, and it actually gets put in prison for 13 years so he's back in the tower of london and then when he finally gets put back in the tower of london he is subsequently executed for sparking this fight with the spanish so uh, here is a man who was once um th thick thick in it with the the tudor monarchy part of the part of the court uh, married a lady in waiting was traveling around the world and he ends up spending the majority of the rest of his life in prison and then has his head chopped off so uh, when you're thinking of stories in london particularly of people uh, uh, falling from grace and how the mighty have fallen i'm not sure poor old vince really counts but certainly walter rawley does james when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Yeah, absolutely. And and how the mighty have fallen prompted me to sort of think in all sorts of ways of thinking about falls from power and, and in addition to Walter Raleigh, there are so many examples to choose from from the 16th century alone. And you can think of Henry VIII's ministers, Thomas's Wolsey and Cromwell from the 17th century. You could think of Charles I, um, the Stuart monarch who is executed during the uh, English Civil War. For later periods, you could think of Napoleon, even Hitler. Uh, and what's interesting is that fall from power did not actually tarnish their fame to sort of return to that um, that main theme um, and their renown for good or ill continued to be remembered in posterity. I mentioned Boris Johnson earlier on and I think history will judge um, how time treats uh, Boris Johnson uh, and the pundits are already judging him as somebody who is deeply deeply flawed yet on the other hand, deeply gifted and charismatic. I heard him being described as a sort of once-in-a-lifetime politician in a very sort of positive way. Um, but I've chosen, uh, I've chosen in a roundabout way to talk about the fall from power of the Italian fascist dictator Benito Mussolini. Uh, now he, a fascinating sort of couple of years from uh, the 25th of, of July 1943 through to the end of the war in 45. Um, Benito Mussolini had become prime minister in 1922 and he saw himself a very much as a sort of Julius Caesar type figure um, who wanted to to sort of rebuild the um, legendary Roman Empire. Um, but by about July 1943, the war is going, you know, really wrongly uh, for Italy. Uh, they've linked themselves to Hitler, Nazi Germany during World War II, uh, the Allied invasion of Sicily, bombing of Rome caused the Italian high command and the king, Victor Emmanuel III, to remove Mussolini from power and to place him under house arrest. So the Grand Council decide that they're going to get rid of him. Um, they bring in a military uh, leader uh, instead. And on the 25th of July 1943, he's basically, you know, removed. The king meets him uh, that morning uh, and tells him that General Pietro um, would assume the powers of prime minister um, and he Mussolini takes this sort of you know in his stride but is sort of you know is really sort of groggy and you know and not really thinking straight he then leaves the meeting he's promptly arrested by the police who've basically been looking for an excuse uh, to arrest him for ages he's then put under house arrest um the key thing then though is that you know from the german side what is italy going to do are they going to continue 
uh, fighting alongside their German allies or are they going to surrender? Um, And what this leads to is a rescue attempt in September 1943. So Mussolini has basically been put uh, under house arrest in a penal settlement on the island of Ponza and Nazi paratroopers basically um, have a sort of, you know, daring commando raid to rescue him uh, from, from, from where he's being held. And he is then installed as a figurehead of a social republic of Italy known informally as the Republic of Salo. So effectively what he is is a, a Nazi um, puppet, um, uh, you know, occupying a, a province in, in northern Italy. Now, by uh, the 25th of April 1945, uh, Germany is losing uh, its grip in the northern Italy. So their, their stronghold in Milan is in is in real sort of trouble there's a lot of pressure there and basically the nazis uh negotiate with the 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 partisans at the palace of milan's cardinal alfredo schuster and they decide unbeknownst to mussolini that they are going to negotiate for an unconditional surrender at this basically mussolini decides the game is up and he flees uh, taking his mistress with him in a Alfa Romeo sports car that he bought her as a gift. They they flee along with all sorts of other fascists and they are they they put on a disguise and then they are caught uh by the partisans who um who seize both of them. They then hide them overnight in a remote farmhouse and then the next day they take them to a small village on the shores of Lake Como and they put them in front of uh, a wall and machine gun them to death. Now, this is where the corpse uh, has a really interesting uh, part to play in this story. Because what's really interesting is what happens to Mussolini's body after the execution. So he's taken to one of the main sort of squares in Milan, thrown out. The body is thrown out into the square where people, you know, shoot it. Um, They throw rubbish at it they throw fruit at it and then the body of him and his girlfriend and other fascists are strung up by their feet um from the girders of a gasoline station um the body is then taken down uh by the americans who then stage the body of the dictator and his mistress embracing each other in a really sort of grisly grisly pose and then the body um, has a really interesting uh, story after that. Um, after it has been um, after it has been photographed in this in this um, in this way, um, it's it's buried in an unmarked grave in a Milan cemetery. Although basically, what anti-fascists go along to it, making regular pilgrimages, basically to desecrate the grave. Um, it's then sort of dug up. And it's sent off in a wheelbarrow um, with uh, by the Democratic Fascist Party, who hide it in a monastery outside of Milan. And when a new Italian government comes in, um, in 1957, the newly elected Prime Minister, um, basically in return for support from far-right votes, he gives the bones of Mussolini to his widow, uh, so basically it's been hiding in this cupboard in a monastery and then it's given to his widow. And get this, the last <laughs> last piece of his body uh, is returned to his widow in 1966, uh, which is handed over by the United States. And this, would you believe, is a sample of his brain that was taken uh, and tested uh, for syphilis. Um, the the results were inconclusive, so that an autopsy was performed on it. So there we are. There's um, a, oh, the a mighty real have fallen utter days. fall from <laughs> an utter fall from fame. Absolutely. Now another uh, part of the story of fame, whatever it might be, is the rise to fame. And I think that's part of it as well. So we've talked about the fall, the rise. Now in terms of um, the film, we don't find out where Vince came from apart from 
um, a little trip to see his mum. And it's fair to say that, that Vince did rise from nothing. I think he's down in Sussex, uh, his mum's living uh, in some dejection and, and poverty. Um, now, there are some fantastic examples of people becoming enormously famous from... Um, well, you don't really necessarily know about what they where they came from but what they did is a really important part of this so we so Kurt Cobain very famously was a, a janitor David Bowie a butcher's delivery boy Ozzy Osbourne again a bit like Bowie he worked in an abattoir Mick Jagger hospital porter and Jarvis Cocker is a was a fishmonger and I thought that was fascinating and there's certainly a history there talking about how uh, people rise and the importance of what they did um, uh, often it has to be a, a strong, strong contrast uh, to what they then go on to become, making uh, making an enormous amount of money, standing on stage, being worshipped by other people. Um, a, a subsequent part of it as well is how um, people, specifically in boy bands or, or pop acts, um, have then gone on to enjoy their lives in different ways. I've um, got a number of interesting examples here. Hannah Spirit from the brilliant S Club 7. She owns a cafe in Twickenham, um, which is uh, the Earth and Fire Cafe. I would recommend you all going there. I was very nearby recently in Kew and stopped off. Uh, Simon Webb uh, from Blue runs a talent management agency. So he's still in the industry, I suppose, one way or another. Uh, Lee Brennan from 911 is an online fitness coach. Uh, Adil Lynch from Bewitched. Uh, say Lavi, what a tune that was! A podcast host and singer, and Dan Corsi from Northern Line, a DJ, model, and actor. So it's not just about falling from power. It's not just about how the mighty have fallen. Um, this is very much a story of people being able to enjoy and explore entirely different lives to that which they enjoyed as younger people when they had this 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 blinding moment of fame. And to finish, I wanted to just talk a little bit about music therapy because as an important part of the the film, I used to be famous in um, how music is used within the community to help people who have uh, got a variety of challenges, mental or physical, whatever they might be. And I thought that was particularly interesting and it, it certainly shone a very good light on the community in Peckham and, and around Peckham Rye. Um, it's important adding that musical therapy uh, has a very strong and specific historical link to war um, and uh, one of the people to first noted the value of music uh, as therapy was Florence Nightingale and uh, in, in this is the 1800s and she noted particularly that the different types of music had different effects and she noted how wind instrument pieces with continuous sound or air generally had a beneficial effect on patients but she observed that instruments that do not produce continuous sound had the opposite effect I thought this was interesting because in the film um, they uh, Vince gets involved in a local community group and they're djembe drumming they're drumming on the African djembe drum I've had a go in a very similar community group, but in Guangzhou in China, where you've got uh, a group of Africans who have uh, moved to China. They're, they're um, using it as an opportunity to to bind their culture together, to get a sense of identity within the, the bewildering and enormous city of Guangzhou. It's also a religious idea as well, because they're, they're Catholics, and they met just nearby to the, the beautiful Catholic cathedral in Guangzhou. And I, I joined um, part of that. But um, uh, the point to make here is that djembe drumming um, is fantastically... Uh, rhythmical, and it is the opposite of what Florence Nightingale noted about the continuous sound or air. And I get a real sense of of her using recorders to ease the suffering of soldiers during the Crimean War, um, which makes the obvious point that the type of music used for musical therapy has changed over time. It has its own history. Uh, now, if you're interested in djembe drumming, I'd certainly go and give it a go. Um, uh, and it's also, well, it started off being um, used as uh, a therapy, particularly for military veterans. Now, the type of music, the type of instruments they used changed from the First World War to the Second World War. There's a really interesting chapter on what was used, particularly in America, um, after the Vietnam War. Um, but now, um, I think even even more broadly, uh, it's used for uh, particularly the treatment of Alzheimer's. 
which I'm particularly interested in because of my grandmother who suffered from Alzheimer's and I'm quite cross. I never took a djembe drum and tried to entertain her with it. Now, just to get the sense of it of here, the power of this, this is from March 1916 and it's a newspaper article called Wounded Soldiers Cheered by Music. And um, it's about a woman called May Moulton. Now, she sent phonographs, records, mandolins, guitars. So she's sending uh, recordings, but also the ability to create music to men fighting overseas to cheer them up, but also to help those who are are suffering with, with very grave injuries indeed. And there's some wonderful detailed feedback about how it worked. And she writes that it was almost pathetic, the joy this music gave. I've had letters telling how the poor wounded fellows enjoyed the phonograph concerts that were given in the dreary wards of the hospitals. They wrote to me saying that those who suffered the most would cease moaning and listen while the records played. And no sooner did I realise what this meant to them than I decided I would make every effort to send them all the music I could obtain. So um, there's some fantastic pioneers there um, which help you understand how music has been used to treat, um, treat people over time. And that, James, is pretty much it. And I think we can therefore conclude by simply saying that this is how the film I Used to Be Famous is actually all about uh, well, Florence Nightingale, Nero, Benito Mussolini, Walter Rawley, Anthony and Cleopatra, El Dorado, Mount Rushmore and corpses. And <laughs> ancient knew? Rome. Who knew? Ancient Rome. Yeah. And it's available <laughs> in select cinemas from the 9th of September and on Netflix from the 16th of September. Uh, so Ooh. check it out. Absolutely. Well, that's it for now, guys. We'll be back again soon, uh, possibly with the history of board games. That sounds Ooh, fun. lovely. If you'd like to follow me, please follow me on social media at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime history, the history of the sea and ships, please, please listen to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And if you'd like to follow me, I'm on Twitter at James Daybell. The podcast is at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook, and we have a website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, where you can see all our back catalogue and with Christmas soon around the corner. I don't know how many shopping days there are, but not many. Um, you can buy signed copies of our five books, uh, should you go there. And if you want to help us change the way in which we think about the past, head over to patreon.com and our page there, Histories of the Unexpected, to support what we are doing. Anything that you can give is very much appreciated and supports the work that we are doing. But meanwhile, uh, take care of yourselves and be well out there. Cheerio, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.